Welcome to Better Than Nothing. I'm Ken Root. I grew up on an Oklahoma farm in the 1950s, attended Oklahoma State University for four and a half years, and graduated in 1972. Better Than Nothing is my self-deprecating way of saying what you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. And today I'm talking again with Gene Millard, my longtime friend from St. Joe, Missouri, who has a huge background in agriculture and in broadcasting. He's lived pretty much in the same area his entire life, and that's one of the reasons that, Gene, I wanted to talk to you. You grew up not too far from St. Joe, didn't you? No, we. it was just about 25 miles uh, east of St. Joe. And so St. Joe was the big town we went to when I was a kid. (laughs) I want to talk about something that people may not think about very much today, and that is the social mores in rural America circa 1960. Now, in 1960, you and I were both aware of the world. I was 11 would you like to tell me how old you were then? Uh, I was a freshman in college. I was about 18, 19. So we had a knowledge of the late 50s and 60s, the way our parents acted. And the goal on this show is to just go back to that time as much as we can relate to it on the social structure of rural America, because uh, I think it was very important to the way people conducted themselves as to how they thought others expected them to conduct themselves more than today. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I would agree with it. And there were some unique uh, features about that generation at that point in time that uh, probably is not quite as common today in rural America. It may be in some urban centers where there's been more immigration, but you know, many of my, my grandparents were just uh, second generation uh, immigrants. And uh, so they were very, very t- much tied to their original uh, European heritage and customs. I think that's where a lot of this comes from. I mean, it was not an all white society, um, depending upon the community you were in. But it was, uh, if it wasn't, if it was black and white, it was divided. So you can call it that it was just a white culture within that area and a black culture within that area, if that existed. But the people, you're right, came from this background that there was a quite old culture that they had brought with them. I think it seemed to be fairly similar across Europe. Dwelling on my mother's side, uh, her father was definitely pure German. Uh, his name was Ehlers, and in Germany they pronounced it Ehlers, but it's all the same. And her mother was Welsh, and uh, and at a totally different uh, kind of atmosphere around their family reunions. My mother's uh, mother's side, uh, Powell's, uh, they were very happy-go-lucky, uh, very outgoing, uh, you know, always having a good time, uh, not not all 
off scope off, off the street but you know they were they were very amiable uh, and on the german side you might say they were a little stiff-lipped <laughs> yes i uh, i can see some of those people and knew a few of them yeah. and you still exist today in my family we were pretty much mongrels they claim that the word root was the word rose as a last name in france but i think somebody made that up I think there was a German background to it uh, and some British. In my DNA test, I pretty much show that. Uh, so about all I can say is that the first grandfather from Vermont came to Iowa in the uh, mid-19th century and uh, settled in West Union, Iowa, and was there in 1849 when that town was founded. And then people scattered to Missouri. And then when I was born, my parents, they had been born literally and grown up in Oklahoma. My dad actually coming into the state just before statehood in 1907. Wow. Did you find that, that the use of alcohol was um, in some families condoned and in other families condemned? Absolutely. And we were on the side it was condemned totally. My mother was the same way for her entire lifetime. My dad was kind of happy-go-lucky with this, but uh, she didn't let him be. But I think that was a factor as well. You know, the people that came from Bavaria, etc., beer was a part of their culture. But right. some of these people, especially from Britain, it was not. Right. Yeah, it was definitely a dividing line uh, in the community and but we had you know, a lot of it was church related, and we had two, three predominant uh, religious denominations in in our little community, and everybody knew which side of the aisle the other one was. And if you had a community wide service, uh, you know, one uh, denomination sat on one side of the aisle, and the other side sat on the other side of the aisle. Uh, but they got along during the week. You know, what were the denominations within your community? I, I suppose the dominant ones were uh, Southern Baptist and uh, and also Methodist. Those are the two primary. And anyone that was in any other denomination was, uh, you know, kind of looked at it a little bit on the outside of things. Yeah. yeah. In my community, it was uh, the Baptists were the people that were the hellfire and brimstone. Yep. Uh, the Methodists were much more moderate than them, but they still favored hellfire and brimstone. So nobody was liberal. And then we oh, no. had uh, three Catholic families in our community and a church that was always locked and had a little red light on and no one understood anything about it. And then there was also uh, people who would be referred to as uh, Assembly of God today right. uh, called Holy Rollers at the time, uh, which were more of an evangelical group. And then, of course, the people that came to your house that were Jehovah's Witnesses were also within the area. Yeah, it was, it was a diversity of uh, religious belief. And, and uh, you know, in our particular case, uh, the Organized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and some called us Mormons, but we were not. That was a totally different sect. But still, that was uh, the religious organization that uh, brought the uh, previous generations to this country. They were converted, uh, you know, to uh, this religious group in Germany and in uh, Wales. And at that point in time, in the 1840s, uh, 
conditions in Europe were not a lot unlike what's going on in Ukraine right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was pretty much warlike. And I think they were looking for a place to get out of town and, uh, they all migrated here. Uh, one, uh, uh, side of the family migrated to, uh, well, Eastern Iowa and why they ever moved from Eastern Iowa to Northwest Missouri. I'll never know because there's a lot better dirt up there than we have down here. Uh, and the other family also moved from Wales to, uh, uh, DeKalb County, Missouri, Sturzville near where my home hometown is. So, you know, that was, that's what brought them here, uh, in the original movement. And, and in the German heritage, my grandfather was the old, was the youngest son of about five brothers. And the German heritage uh, tradition at that time, when the previous generation passed, went to the oldest son. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. with my grandfather being the youngest, he was out. It was one of those things that it was such a, a strong part of their uh, belief. And uh, with my grandfather's uh, dad being the youngest son, uh, he carried forth the tradition, but he swapped it around and gave the farm to the youngest. Abinara, huh. And that ticked off all the rest of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it traditions that, that sometimes are, uh, carry a long, long trail behind them. You know, I can tell you, I think, why your family left Eastern Iowa, because my family left Eastern Iowa. It was before 1900. Oh, yeah. And before 1900, they hadn't drained the swamps. And eastern Iowa was colder. Spring didn't come as early. And uh, sometimes they didn't make a crop because that ground was so wet and so cold, they couldn't get a crop in early. And then they had to deal with that muck and mud. So once they drained that, which was a huge effort beginning just around the beginning of the 20th century, that's when we look at Iowa and say, oh my goodness, what great land. But it was swampy up until they accomplished that. And I think that's why my family left because they heard about land in Missouri and Oklahoma that was um, uh, sweet and easy to plow and grew big crops. They just happened to not know that the rains didn't come every year and a lot of that land would blow away and wash away if they didn't keep cover on it. <laughs> right. Well, it was it was a lot less expensive, too. I think it was just a, a little a lower cost uh, startup fee, if you want to call it that way. And, and I don't know how they raised the capital to do that. And I know there was some homesteading going on in that uh, time period, but I don't think ours were ever homesteaded. They were just bought at $25 an acre or something. Well, there was quite a bit. Of course, all of Oklahoma was homesteaded basically right. uh, through the years because they took it away from the Indians and gave it in selected lots uh, out for settlement. Here we are. We've crossed into the lifetime of our parents. We are looking at things at mid-century in the 20th century. Gene Millard is my guest who is old enough to appreciate that time period, and I'm pretty close to that. And what I really wanted to talk about was how they conducted themselves during our youth. My family, I'll just give them a a standard here. They were poor, but proud. In other words, we didn't have much. They were children of the depression. They married 1929 and they made it through the depression, had three kids to boot. 
but they were always extremely conservative. They couldn't risk buying much of anything, but they had their dignity and they held it very, very close. How about yours? I, I would say very similar uh, because of the times that they grew up. The previous generation really endured the Depression. They, my dad grew up uh, in those years and was a water boy on a thrashing crew. Uh, and, so, and he never got beyond eighth grade in education. And so it was, it was pretty meager in the startup period and through the 1940s, the, the war years. Uh, my dad was uh, deferred because he was a farmer and a lot of farmers were deferred. And I do recall that in I think 1945, I would have been about four years old. Uh, he was uh, called to take a physical for induction, but the war was far enough along at that point in time that he wasn't uh, drafted in the military while most of the neighbors were. Uh, in one way or another, or had volunteered. But since uh, dad had a family like me, uh, you know, he wanted to stay and farm uh, as long as he possibly could and contribute to the war effort in that way. I look at pictures of my family. I had an aunt that had a camera and would come out and take pictures of them. That's basically all the pictures they had of the time in the 40s and 50s. There's very few pictures of them except wedding picture in the 1929 and very little after that, during the 30s, they simply had no money for anything that wasn't a necessity. But in those pictures, Gene, our family looked harsh and work-worn. I don't know if it was just the contrast of black and white or whether we really were. In fact, in several of our pictures, people looked kind of dirty. <laughs> not if my right. mother had anything to, to do with it. But I guess the clothes were never as bright and white as they are now. Uh, and they had very few good clothes, but they did, uh, they did have a different look than I think people had post-war. Well, one thing about it, I mean, we had work clothes and then we had Sunday clothes <laughs> and, and that was it. Uh, there was not much in between in our, our household. At least I, I had about two pairs of jeans that I wore during the week and mom was an avid, uh, did washing in that ringer washer avidly and even washed, I think, every, and, and ironed everything. Uh, the closet was, uh, it didn't take much space at that point in time. There was, you know, about you know, two, two shirts and, and, and maybe a pair of slacks, uh, and a, and an overcoat in, in the wintertime, but it was just a different deal, but you didn't go to church with uh, jeans on or a sports shirt. You That's went right. with a white shirt and uh, dress slacks and a necktie or of all things bow ties back then too so i don't know as i want to do that again but that was kind of the uh, pattern at the time and everybody wore top hats in there in the 50s really what type of hat are you talking about you know just a federal yeah just a hat. <laughs> so it was a, it was it was a hat but you you had to, it was proper to have a hat. The first of the caps of the modern era, I think, were given away by John Deere in the mid-60s, as I recall. I, except for a few chore caps that had earmuffs on them, I don't think I saw uh, any identification of caps before that period. I think you're right. I, my early caps were just an ear flopper cap uh, that you wore during the fall and winter. And then a straw cap, had a straw cap. And we wore a lot of straw hats in the summertime. Hmm. Everybody had to wear a straw hat of some sort. They weren't necessarily Western style. Some were, some weren't. 
They were just hats. That's all I can tell you. Kept the kept the hot sun off the off your face part of the time. Now you would think, folks, that we are complaining about this, and I just yeah. have to say, no, that's not true at all. No. This is our society. This is what we were in, and this is how we lived. And we didn't really have much awareness of anything else. I do recall people in town that could be socially proper and still have some money uh, if they own, if they worked in the bank or they owned a grocery store or something like that. But they were still very much like us. Uh, there was some elevation to their status, but it wasn't that much. The thing I really remember, though, if you could call my parents middle class by any definition, it is that they wanted their children to have a better life than they had, and that included education. How was it in your family? Well, that was the primary, really primary driver because my dad, like I said, went to eighth grade, and uh, he grew up as uh, basically uh, almost an orphan, a single mom living with her dad. He grew up with his grandfather. His grandfather took them in uh, when my dad was just a year or so old, and uh, he looked at it as kind of think like an imposition, but uh, didn't know what else to do. So my dad went to eighth grade twice, but he never went to high school. And my mother went to high school, and uh, and she professionally did very well. She even did some newspaper writing, and and uh, but women didn't really work. You know, they stayed home and cooked uh, dinner <laughs> every day. Um, but at any rate, uh, the education was a primary thing driver. And I heard it from the time I can remember, you're going to go to college. You're going to go to college. You're going to get off this dirt farm. You're going to go to college. Yeah, I had yeah. no idea what I might take in college uh, because we were in a small school. There were 16 in my high school class. And 15 of the 16 of us started in the first grade and went all the way through 12 years, which is pretty unusual. I mean, there, it was not a transient community at all at that time. Uh, we had families that were, we call them today, we call them anchor families mm -hmm. because there's a few of those families that still are in that community. But uh, that's transposed significantly from the 1950s till today when uh, there's a lot of people that move in because it's cheaper housing they commute to a job somewhere they're really not a part of the day-to-day -day going on in the community other than school no no it, we're, we were not a mobile society at that no. time we had very little in migration my parents to finish out what we're talking about here got all four of us a college education my dad said it was against the will of my two older brothers, but he got them one anyway. Uh, and uh, one of them was interrupted by flunking out of school, going to Korea to the military, and then uh, coming back and graduating of his own volition. And the other was a brother that had more than enough hours to graduate, but he kept changing majors in college. So he quit, started working for Halliburton, and then went to Western Electric in Oklahoma City, and 14 years after he started college, he finished college. So that was the route. My sister got out in four. I got out in four and a half. And they accomplished their purposes literally, totally, by doing that. I want to turn to women, as you brought up your mother, what her role was. And to me, the role of women 
was much narrower and much more subservient in society at that time. My example, Gene, is that my mother was never Marie Root. She was Mrs. Oren Root her entire life. Right. And that was the way it was. She never had a job off the farm. She could work as hard as she wanted to on the farm, but she got secondary credit for it, if any. And my mother was an incredible worker, but she didn't have nearly the social um, rights and latitude that women had thereafter. I would say that's absolutely the case. Uh, my mother, uh, you know, was probably one of the best cooks in the neighborhood. And uh, we always had uh, three meals a day. Absolutely. It was it was ironclad, breakfast at seven, uh, dinner, a lunch, lunch or dinner uh, is at 12 noon, not 12.05, 12 noon, and supper is at six. And you uh, you better be there because that's the timeline that everything was staged upon uh, for your entire day in or outside the house. And everything was cooked from scratch too, wasn't it? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. You bet. You know, she bought flour and, uh, sugar and, uh, sometimes shortening, although we had our own lard, uh, rendered most of those years, but once in a while she'd break down and buy a can of Crisco. Uh, I think our grocery bill might have run ten or fifteen dollars a week, and then then she was screaming about that. You didn't drink coffee, did you? No, no. We had Postum and hot chocolate was about it, mm-hmm. and that Postum was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the role of women uh, has been probably as major a change as anything in our society, but the women were very clearly the enforcers of the social rules of the community. Uh, and the men in general allowed them that. And my mother, and I guess this is as important to me as anything, wanted to make sure that the neighbors viewed us as proper people that weren't hypocrites, that we did what we were supposed to do all the time. You know, that integrity is what she wanted us to have. And she had it, but the rest of us had a hard time keeping it. But my mother made sure that we followed the rules of society and she could be greatly embarrassed by what any of us did because of what it implied within the community. Oh, absolutely. I mean, whatever you did reflected on the whole. So you were very careful about that because at that time, corporal punishment was not unheard of. Oh, no, no. It was uh, it was doled out. I was lucky. I was the youngest of the family. And my parents were tired before I was born, but (laughs) my brothers who are 18 and 16 years older than me swear that they were whipped every day. (laughs) And one of them, I think really deserved to be whipped every day. But, uh, and people had, my parents had four children. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I had uh, one younger brother. He was four years younger and he had it pretty easy because I plowed the the path. And so, uh, uh, (laughs) he got, he got away with a few more things than I did. Uh, well, it was a lot of families were still fairly big moving into the sixties, I think. Oh, yeah. And, um, people had children because they needed labor. And, uh, also I think a generation earlier or more, they realized that you may not raise to adulthood, every child that your wife conceives and your wife may not be able to have every child she tries to birth and she may die. So the families, they had a, 
a different view of uh, mortality, I think, than we do. I think maybe you're right there. Uh, we, we were blessed by not having too many of those kind of tragic issues, you know, in our immediate family, but we know of several others that did. We had a neighbor lady moving into this gossip in the community stuff and how, you know, people watched each other. And my mother, and she got along fairly well, but she was always careful of this lady. And uh, after my mother died, the lady was still living. And she asked my sister and I, my sister's 10 years older than I am, to come over. She'd like to see us. And so we went over to her house and she was about 82, something like that. And she said, I want to tell you that uh, in March, in fact, March the 12th of 1948, there was a blizzard in Oklahoma and this lady had a baby and they couldn't get her out to the hospital. And so she had the baby at home, which was significant because this was the last child ever born at home in that community. Really? She said, uh, your mother, my mother's name was Marie, came over to see her and brought her a pie or something after that. And I believe my mother walked over there because it was only about a mile and a half. She said uh, to this lady, the last thing I need now is a new baby. And March the 7th of the next year, I was born. And she never brought that up. She never told that. She just said, your mother loved you dearly. But you know, and I know, that it wasn't her choice at 38 years old to have another child. Well, it happens. That's true. It certainly does. In my case, I was born at home. And uh, my brother, uh, four years younger, was also born at home. We had a country doctor that would come around. Uh, you know, he'd drive in in his uh, 40 Ford and, uh, you know, with his little doctor bag and uh, chuck on you. And that was the way it was done then. And uh, I, I don't know as it was unusual. I, did, I personally never uh, was admitted into a hospital until I was over 60. My father was 71. I think he had Bell's palsy. And I took him in and they wanted to know all these records. And I yeah. said, look, he has never been in hospital. No, That's no, right. I'm just referring to this. I said, no. And just this blank stare from the attendance because they couldn't believe a person could live that long without ever being in a hospital. That's right. Uh, I want to ask you about teen behavior. You know, when you become a teenager, the word rebellious, the word teenager really are synonymous in the community where I grew up, people volunteered to watch you and tell your parents about you. I never really appreciated that. Did you have that uh, going on? Of course you were an angelic child, but did you? I, I absolutely was well, pretty close to it anyway. You know, everybody knew where everybody was at any one given moment. And, uh, you know, I got a, my first car when I was 16, uh, 17, I guess, uh, mainly because they got tired of me borrowing their car uh, to, to go to a basketball game or something. But, you know, the, the real was, though, that girls were home by 10 and yeah. boys were home by 11. And there were no exceptions. And if you tried to sneak in after that, you couldn't walk quiet enough. Yep. The the words of the song, Wake Up a Little Susie, if you listen to that, it's uh, the implication of anything that uh, you came in late, you were accused of the worst. Oh, absolutely. Even though you were innocent. That's right. One of the cutest stories I've heard was Lee Klein, who has just passed away in his 90s, a farm broadcaster at WHO for many years. He said... When he was a boy, they had a B. John Deere. And one day he realized that 
this B. John Deere could actually, backing up, go faster than it would go in any forward gear if you put it kind of in between the ranges. Now, you're the machinery guy, and we got to go with a story that he could make it go twice as fast backwards as it would go forward. So he decided that coming home from the field, he would drive it backward. And he said, I was really doing fine, you know, going down the road. And he said, I got home and nobody was there. And I, uh, uh, parked it and went in. He said, the next day, my dad said, Leland, understand you were driving down the road backward in the tractor yesterday. He said, I have no idea who ever told him, but he said they were watching me all the time. Well, you know, back in those years in the fifties, uh, we had a telephone. Uh, one of those wooden boxes that hung on the wall sure. that you cranked uh, to make it ring. And you had uh, Sally, the uh, operator down in town, uh, that uh, you know would take that ring and connect you with who you were wanting to call. And you had a three-digit phone number. But there was a party line. And there was, I think, six or seven on our party line. Well, there was always at least one or two they could hear your ring when you, if you were a long and a short and somebody else was two shorts and a long. Uh, so you knew whose ring was whose and invariably somebody had to eavesdrop. And so you were very careful about what you ever said on the telephone. My mother was that way. And for those who don't relate to this, there were four, eight, 12 people on a line and anybody who picked it up could hear who else was on the line at the time. And sometimes people honestly picked it up because they weren't in the house when you got on the phone right? and and only one party could be on the phone at a time. We, we use the phone that little. And uh, so they might pick it up, but um, we had neighbors who uh, were accused of this, but my mother, again, this was one of those areas. She was very, very careful with what she said on the phone, fearing that somebody might hear it uh, that would spread it as gossip. (laughs) I want to finish up with something. It's kind of off the wall. Death. When somebody died, there was a social structure of that community for handling it. And I maybe you thought about this. What was the structure that you recall? Because it was clear in a community how that they responded to you and to the funeral and to whatever social setup you had to recognize that person's death and the mourning of their relatives. Well, you immediately, as soon as you know, uh, there would be somebody cooking something someplace that would be carrying in food uh, mm-hmm. to the bereaved family. Uh, so they wouldn't have to worry about that function as they were making arrangements for the funeral. In those years, almost every funeral was in a church. Uh, very, very seldom was a funeral held not in a church. And so, you know, a big basket dinner was always part of the deal. And you had a, an hour at least, or maybe a whole evening of visitation uh, the night before the funeral itself. And then besides going to the full-blown uh, funeral with uh, mostly open caskets, when the funeral service is over, everybody followed the lead hearse and the family to the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And you had, a again, a graveside service at the cemetery that might last a half an hour or more uh, before you dispersed. And that was kind of the the set routine. 
and it's still some cases still goes along that way. Yeah. Well, it's respect. And uh, I just wanted you to spell that out of how it was in your community. Much of that was similar. Some of those things still exist today. My parents, however, in their community was very careful about how much money you spent for anything. And uh, there were some, and this was a generation ahead of me, that the deceased was laid out, if you will, on a bed in their home. And if they had it, they would put flowers or other things around that person after they had dressed them in the clothing they were going to bury them in. And then people would come to their house and they would see them. And then if the funeral was at their home, uh, they would then take them to the family cemetery and bury them. But by my youth, everybody was in a casket and everybody was put in the cemetery. And the cemetery for my parents was a major meeting ground. Every decoration day um, and a couple of other holidays, everybody would go to the cemetery who had come back home to a little town that had lost a lot of people, and they'd all visit and visit and visit. Because I remember my mother one time, I was eighth in eighth grade, and I was almost six feet tall. And she said, oh, I want you to come with us. And I said, Mom, I'm coming with you if you will stop calling me your baby. <laughs> oh, I, I won't do that. I won't do that. Well, sure enough, you know, the first person to sh- show up that she hadn't seen in years, oh, here is our baby, Kenny, you know, and I'm standing a foot plus taller than my mother right. and just to irritate me to no end. But the the funerals were a major closing for the community a means of showing respect and uh, people wore their best clothes. And uh, I thought it was a, it was a true mark of their humanity. It was. And uh, it, it was just really pure respect, not a selfish respect of somebody who's going to uh, throw something on their grave after they're gone. Right. I mean, it was respectful. I got one more story for you. True story, nope. different part of the country. We had my dad's brother's notification that he had passed away in Kentucky, and he was uh, four years older than my father. So this was in the early 1980s. My parents still pretty spry. And my uh, brother, 16 years older, and I decided we would drive to Kentucky and see them. And uh, we arrived about uh, 7 o'clock in the evening, just before it was getting dark. The house where we went to at 618 Mill Street, uh, why I can't remember, forget that, I don't know, was about half full of people. And my aunt came to the door and she greeted us and she thanked us for coming. And so we'd been driving all day and my mother and father went in first. So here they had this big table full of food. And she said, oh, I know you haven't eaten. Let me get you a plate. And everybody was basically getting the plate of food there and then going into another room to sit down. So my aunt stayed with them. They both got a plate of food. My mother was in the lead. And so as they got ready to walk into the next room, my aunt said, oh, I'm so glad you came. Don't you think Chester looks so natural? And my mother realized the room she had walked into three feet in front of her was his casket and it was open. Yeah, And my mother's line was, she didn't know how she kept from dumping her food into the casket. You know, she was that close to it, so embarrassed, but she had never had the combination of the food and the viewing in the same room. And of course, this was in the house. 
So we, we laughed for years and years after that one, different cultures, different traditions, different places. Well, yes, and all of us had some roots in previous generations the way they approached it all. Gene, it's a joy to talk to you once again. Thank you for sharing your stories of your youth. Uh, you were in Missouri. I was in central Oklahoma. I think people from border to border can relate to this in rural areas and maybe get a little memory and a little chuckle out of what we've talked about. Well, we know we had patched overalls and uh, really thought it was embarrassing to have a hole in the knees of our jeans. It was a different world, and absolutely it was. We couldn't just go down to Walmart and buy something else. Nope. It didn't work that way. Gene Miller, longtime friend, broadcaster, farmer, St. Joe, Missouri. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you can't remember that, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.